Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. America's dwindling grasslands require action. That was the headline of an op-ed printed in The Hill on December 5th, 2020. That piece went on to say that on behalf of five of America's largest conservation organizations and our millions of members, we call for bipartisan solutions to the crisis facing our native grasslands, including the creation and passage of a new North American Grasslands Conservation Act. This would invest in conserving and restoring our native grasslands for ranchers, for wildlife, and for future generations. Consider first that 73% of America's tall grass, mixed grass, and short grass prairies have vanished, along with their ecological benefits and many iconic species. Total grassland bird populations have declined by more than 40% since 1966. Species that have been economically significant throughout American history, like the bobwhite quail, have seen declines of nearly 85% in the last half century. America's Great Plains have experienced the conversion of more than 50 million acres of grasslands in just the last 12 years alone. 50 3 million acres. That's an area the size of Kansas. Since that op-ed was written in December, the conservation groups calling for the creation of a North American Grasslands Conservation Act has doubled. Momentum is gaining, and this entire week we're celebrating the grasslands and calling on Congress to create a North American Grasslands Conservation Act. So joining me today for this episode of On the Wing podcast are the presidents and CEOs of three of those partner organizations, including Colin O'Mara, president and CEO of the National Wildlife Federation, Lantani, back with us on On the Wing podcast, making his, what is it, Land, your third? Third appearance? Third, yeah. Thank you. Third appearance. Three and you're out. (laughs) (laughs) I'll keep swinging. I'll keep swinging. There we go. And so Lad Toddy's the president and CEO of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. And then the the final voice, uh, my boss. And uh, this is, well, I think it's your fourth appearance, right, Howard? Probably. Yeah. So I got the walk. (laughs) You got the walk. We're staying with the baseball (laughs) analogy. (laughs) Uh, Howard Vincent, President and CEO of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. And and as listeners can tell, uh, already tell, it's going to be a challenge for me to keep these guys in the base paths. But that's okay. That's what makes good uh, a good podcast. Well, we'll start with the newcomer, Colin. Uh, why don't we start with introduction of, of yourself to our audience, where you're from, where you grew up, and... Um, how long you've been uh, the leader of the National Wildlife Federation? Great. Thanks, Bob. And it's great to be with my friends, Howard and Land, as always. Um, so uh, I run the, the National Wildlife Federation. America's uh, one of our old, one of the oldest uh, conservation organizations in the country. We founded it up in 1936 um, at another time of crisis, as a lot of the the, uh, the bison had already been shot off the plains. The, prairie, the, the, uh, the passenger pigeons have been shot out of the sky. We're losing habitat at a pretty alarming rate. And Franklin Roosevelt convened uh, groups across the country to to really talk about restoring America's wildlife populations um, and you know, particularly game species at the time that were in trouble. I mean, it's hard to imagine now, but you know, at the time there were less than less than half a million deer on the landscape. Now we're probably you know 40, 50, 40, 50 million. Um, so you know, the, the successes of many. That my I grew up I grew up outdoors. I was a Ranger Rick kid growing up. Uh, my first my first exposure to the Federation, I think I was four and a half. My uh, my mom was a school teacher and uh, and religiously did all the activities in Ranger Rick and so we were planting milkweed in the back ha- backyard um, to try to prove that you know the the relationship between migration and symbiotic relationships and all kinds of things so I, I was that nerdy kid from from the jump 
Um, and my dad was, you know, in, in the career military, but like to spend a lot of his time when he when he wasn't in service uh, outdoors. And so I kind of had this blessed childhood in upstate New York, kind of some of God's country, at least for the uh, the two months a year where it's not under six feet of snow. So the um, it's, a, it's it's kind of a marriage made in heaven um, that I've had the opportunity to, to lead an organization that I've revered since I was a, a child. And, you know, one of the things I think we, we all work on is trying to at this time of you know increased technology and everything else. How do we get more folks enjoying what we all love so we can pass it on to future generations? It, well, it's interesting that you made a snow joke right out of the gates with a guy from Montana and a Minnesotan. So we'll uh, <clears throat> we'll we'll follow that up with uh, with Land Tawney, the president and CEO of uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Go ahead and uh, uh, introduce yourself back to our audience, Land. Sure. So uh, I would say, like Colin, I was one of those early adopters of uh, Ranger Rick. Uh, so I don't, I don't think it's nerdy. I think we were just the cool kids. Uh, Colin. <laughs> I keep telling myself that. Um, yeah, we'll see what <laughs> Howard actually uh, Ranger Rick. Um, but uh, so I got, I got the good fortune to grow up here in Montana. I'm a fifth generation Montanan. Uh, both my parents were heavily involved in conservation, and so I think uh, that it was, it was more of like a duty probably than uh, a calling for me uh, in a lot of ways. But uh, I've been working for the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers now for eight years, eight plus years. Um, we have chapters in all states besides Delaware and Hawaii. Uh, and then we have three Canadian provinces that we're in now. And um, what we do every single day is try to make sure you have access to public lands and waters and then the fish and wildlife habitat when you get there. And, you know, I think that as I look at, you know, the, the groups that are on today, like I just can't, you know, all this, all this work that is done, you know, either when Colin talks about kind of the dirty 30s and the start of the Federation back then, or you talk about where we are today, is these things are done with big groups of people, you know, there's yeah. this concept we're going to talk about today. So I'm excited to be on uh, the phone with uh, uh, two great folks, uh, but then, you know, know that this is going to take more than just our organizations and us as individuals. It's going to take a lot more. So uh, thank you. Uh, I don't have anything. I mean, snow wise, you know, um, <laughs> I was just in Ely, Minnesota, which, and they said that uh, they have two weeks that were 50 below, 50 below this last year. So as a kid who grew up with snow and some cold temperatures, I will pass the mic to somebody in Minnesota that has to deal with much colder temperatures than so, I do. So, Land, before you do, I didn't realize that Delaware is one of the states you don't have one. I'm actually calling you from Wilmington right now. Like, let's make a little history on the call, and I'll start the Delaware chapter right now. Like, we'll get number 49. I'll chapter. I love it. So decreed. So what are the odds of this? I want to go to Hawaii. I will fly to Hawaii and start that chapter. I'm in. Howard, you need to get out. Howard, you need to get mine. You need to get you. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's uh, what are the odds? That arm behind your back is definitely twisted. (laughs) The ultimate retirement package. Yeah. Uh, too fun. All right, Howard, go ahead and introduce yourself back to our audience. All right. Uh, well, Bob, thanks for having me for the fourth time. Uh, so I'm Howard Vincent, president and CEO of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. I've uh, been a part of this organization for, oh, 35 of its 38 years, roughly. Mm-hmm. Um, came, you know, I came from a different world than uh, these two criminals. I, you know, I came from the accounting background, uh, kind of first part of my career, uh, and then came to Pheasants Forever really as their first director of finance uh, back in 1987. Uh, and then in 2000, I became uh, president and CEO. And uh, boy, I just, you know, I think I've got the best job on the planet uh, because not only of driving the mission, of Pheasants Forever. We are the Habitat organization, but I get to work with incredible partners like Backcountry and National Wildlife Federation, along with uh, uh, the, the rest of these great partners in our space, because we don't do anything by ourselves. Uh, as a Habitat organization and our chapters out there, our volunteers and 750 chapters, uh, especially with that unique model where our chapters retain control of essentially 100% of their net fundraising, um, that means when those membership dollars come to our national headquarters, uh, we're looking for spaces to try to match those dollars. And whether that's with our uh, NGO partners or whether that's with our federal and state partners, uh, NRCS, FSA, Fish and Wildlife Service, Department of Natural Resources, uh, just an incredible uh, way to deliver 
habitat on that landscape. And we also recognize at the end of the day, this isn't just about pheasants or quail. Uh, the work we do impacts soil, water, monarchs, pollinators, sage grouse, lessers. Uh, if it's on the landscape, we believe we can have an impact on it. So uh, it's great to be here with uh, this, this group today. So. And let me take a quick moment to mention a word from our partners at South Dakota Game Fish and Parks and South Dakota Tourism. South Dakota pheasant hunting season is almost here. Are you all set to go? Visit huntthegreatest.com to get your license and plan the upland adventure of your lifetime. So what we want to do today, or my goal is, as, as I talked about in the opening, is the focus of this episode is the North American Grasslands Conservation Act. And while Howard said, you know, we don't do anything alone, that there, you know, the history of our organization, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, rests on collaborative partnerships. I've been here 18 years and I don't think there's any been ever been anything um, on a day-to-day -day basis for in the amount of time we've been working on this act since the beginning of the year that really um, has been as collaborative in a short amount of time and accelerated like like what we're talking about today, um, the North American Grasslands Conservation Act. It's you know, every single week we're meeting with the communications and government affairs folks with backcountry hunters and anglers, National Wildlife Federation, um, World Wildlife Fund, um, uh, groups at TRCP. You know, there's 10 groups that are involved in this. And it's it's startling to me how much it's sort of out of the norm because the gravity of the situation with grasslands is it is sort of reached the doorstep of America right now. And, and I think all of our groups have, have seen that and are acting on that. So let's, I want to break this into a little bit of phases and talk about the why, why we need this act. Then we'll talk about how we're going to get this done and some of the next steps. So as we, as we start to talk about the why, I alluded to some of these statistics in the, the opening, the, the precipitous drop of bobwhite quail and, and really grassland songbirds. Um, but the, it goes beyond just, just birds, right? It, it talk about water quality and soil health and, and big game animals. What I'd like to do it in terms of explaining the why is go from each organization to each organization and explain why this, this idea for this act is should resonate with your members. Why, you know, we'll start with Colin. Why Colin should the National Wildlife Federation, why should your members, why should your followers, folks that are tuning in to listen to this podcast on, uh, on Wednesday, September, this is going to hit Wednesday, September the 8th. Why should it stop them and why should they care? Why is the North American Grasslands Conservation Act important to NWF. Yeah, I mean, as, as we were talking about before, I mean, this idea that we can bring together, you know, huge groups of people that care about the resource for different reasons is, is really the, the premise of the National Wildlife Federation. I mean, I got, you know, 6 million members, a couple million of which hunt and fish, but a lot of which, you know, bird and garden and care about different species. Um, America's grasslands are, are vanishing at a faster rate than the Amazon rainforest right now. I mean, we're losing habitat. Yeah. At, it's, it's one of the most endangered ecosystems in the country. And so whether you care about, you know, have a great pheasant hunt with Howard and his team, or you care about the monarch butterfly population, or you want to have, you know, healthy swift foxes on the, on the landscape or songbirds like, like meadowlarks, um, I mean, they say that entire ecosystem is incredibly endangered. And there are hundreds of species um, that are dependent on it. And, and if we don't figure out a way to invest and restore, um, not only are we going to potentially see the, the precipitous decline of those species, many of which are already, you know, perilously close to being endangered, if not there already, um, you're going to, you're going to see, you know, massive economic impacts. I mean, it's obviously the breadbasket of the country. It's a huge economic driver. Um, and, you know, to not have any kind of regulatory certainty because, you know, you have so many species that are in trouble that require kind of emergency room action. Um, it's just a, uh, kind of a terrifying juxtaposition, kind of ecological crisis and a potential economic crisis at the same time. And so when I talk about this with my members, whether they're, you know, somebody that's going out in the field with a shotgun or somebody that's going out with a, 
pair of binoculars, um, they all get it. Um, they all get it immediately. And, and I think, I mean, look, and, and thank God for pheasants forever, because if it wasn't for Howard's work on the ground over all these years, I can't imagine the mess we'd be in. I mean, I just think they, their organization single-handedly have done so much to preserve grasslands. Um, it helps the Ducks Unlimited and others that are doing on-the-ground work, too. But, um, you know, this is a crisis point. That's what, that's what it requires all of us to be in, um, regardless of why you care about the resource. As long as you care, like, we want you part of this effort. Yeah, that's really what's said. And I should also make this um, addition. That, you know, this started off with that op-ed in the hill. We were talking grasslands, prairies, savannas. And as this concept has evolved, um, that that has included sagebrush, sagebrush too, sagebrush step. And I'm looking at land, and I know that's a huge component to why BHA is involved in this. So go ahead and explain um, your perspective, Leah. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Thanks, Bob. And before I do that, I think just, you know, what Colin just talked about and kind of this crisis that we're in that you're reiterating is that good things can come out of bad. And I think this is one of the great things that can come out of this crisis right now. And if you look at history throughout, you know, conservation in this country, bad things have always precipitated good things. And so to me, um, I'm excited about that. And, you know, and, um, and that's why we have this opportunity in front of us in a lot of ways. Uh, why does this matter to BHA? So, you know, I think when you think about backcountry, sometimes you think about up in Alaska, you know, or you think on uh, the Bob Marshall here in Montana, or I was just in the Boundary Waters, 1.1 million acres of wilderness in northern Minnesota. That's what you think about backcountry. But I would have you think about backcountry in another way, too. And that's these, these grasslands that are still intact in this country. When I'm out there with my dog and I'm out there with somebody and we've got miles and miles of grasslands to walk, that's another form of backcountry. And I think mm. that we have plenty of members throughout this country that exclusively access their backcountry to go bird hunting. We have others, you know, that are out there that, that are utilizing our, our grasslands. You also mentioned the sage step to go hunt mule deer and antelope and elk in those landscapes. These are landscapes that those animals traditionally were on that are in trouble. And so but there's these places that people can find escape. They can find that solace, that idea of backcountry. And so I'd expand our thoughts on, you know, what backcountry is. It definitely is those places in Alaska. It definitely is those places in Montana. But I would say it's also these vast grasslands that we still have the opportunity. Second thing I would say is that, you know, backcountry hunters and anglers is really focused on public lands and public waters. And when you think about the interface between private lands and public lands, yeah. like they're married together, you know, and that, in this trip we just took to Minnesota, we drove through North Dakota and my wife was, had never seen national grasslands. She's been around national forests a lot. And we go by the national grasslands in North Dakota outside Medora. She's like, what's that? And so I got to talk to her about national grasslands. Well, that is also interfaced with a bunch of private land there as well. And so this mm -hmm. marriage that is so vitally important between private and public. And, you know, I think about here in Montana, my home state, 35% of our state is public. And so that's 65 um, is private. And the majority of that is in these lower lands that are grasslands and that sage step that we're talking about today. And so we need to be doing work um, on, you know, on both sides, both private and public, but also within the grasslands. And then they're also um, probably their, uh, their security that they go find uh, in the, in the fall months. So um, for us and the folks that I talk to, I mean, one, they're shocked, I think, to find out about the statistics about what's going on here. And mm -hmm. like, I mean, we talked about 73% of the tall grass prairie has been lost. Size of Kansas, you talk about the number of bird populations have been lost. They're absolutely shocked. Um, but then they're also, uh, they hear about this effort and they want to get engaged. So that's where we're at. And I think that's a connection to BHA in particular. Yeah, it really was. I love, uh, I love the idea of being a backcountry bird hunter. Because, uh, you know, I, I think many of us, I know Howard and I have been on some backcountry. Well, Howard grew up on the edge of the, the Boundary Waters as a backcountry bird hunter going into the wow. to the Boundary Waters um, for days at a time. I mean, you talked about that on the first podcast we wow. did together, um, surviving in the backcountry chasing birds. And and that occurs every single season in, in places like well, not not just places like Montana or Idaho. That that occurs in places like Iowa, where you can get deep into those um, um, grasslands, those prairies um, off the beaten path, and and spend a whole day with your bird dog um, escaping. So I'll, I'll throw throw the, that same question to you, Howard. Um, 
it's probably the most intuitive for our organization to be intimately involved in in the creation of a grasslands act but put it in your words what you what you think about uh, what our members should um, um, have in their mind when you discuss the North American Grasslands Conservation Act sure I guess you know you know as I look at the history of our organization you know we were built on that chapter model you know all habitats local but it's it's broken up into let's call it 750 habitat initiatives uh, and we have you know beyond pheasants yes mm -hmm. beyond quail uh, we have a sage grouse initiative and we've got uh, lesser prairie chicken initiative, uh, monarch butterfly initiative, right? So, but they're compartmentalized, you know, very specific. This is our uh, a view of a continental impact that we can have. So uh, th this is wholly unique. I mean, we have a farm bill that delivers, you know, at this moment, we're at about 24 million acres of CRP, which is spectacular. And that comes out of the Department of Ag, um, and we've got some wonderful partners there, but we need to really elevate this beyond. This is public and private, like Lance said. Um, and if we believe that 80% of wildlife exists on private lands, that's where we're going to have to have a bigger view. And this mm. is from the sage steppe in the northwest to uh, grassland savannas in the southeast for quail and everything in between. So there's an incredible opportunity here. I think the stars are lining up. I think there's a there's toolbox out there that we can learn from. Uh, and obviously, we've talked about uh, utilizing that NACA tool, North American Wetlands Conservation Act. Uh, we sit on that. We're one of those seats uh, on that current board. They deploy 50 to 60 million dollars annually. And the return on that federal dollar uh, is immense because they're matching it out there with our NGO partners and other state partners. We can do the same thing here with grasslands, really elevate this again to with a continental approach, not just a shotgun uh, approach, but really a blanket impact here. I think for a lot of listeners, they, they probably have heard NACA, North American Wetlands Conservation Act, and they probably assume that there was already a Grasslands Act, right? To a certain level, it's sort of like, why are these guys going on and on about this Grasslands deal? Isn't Doesn't it already exist? And the reality is sort of startling. It doesn't exist. Um, it, it's been talked about for a long time. One of our one of my predecessors, Dave Nomson, uh, I can remember having a conversation with Dave years ago about this concept but probably colin i know you've been involved since very early conversations years ago you know and, and you know one thing that should be um clear as we talk through this for listeners it's it's not like we're in the sausage making phase of this concept as it is right like we have a vision for what we want to come out the other end but how this act gets put together is still very much in in the formulaic phase and the recipe creation phase but let's let's start at the beginning how did this concept come to fruition Colin? yeah so i mean we we began talking about this a few years ago actually it was, it was part of the, the bigger conversation with the recovering america's wildlife act looking at you know kind of populations across the country and, and looking at you know kind of places where we needed specific interventions and how to deal with this massive growing number of species that greatest conservation need and, and for me, like the light bulb went off um, working. So Aviva Glazer is just a brilliant member of my team. Um, and I were kind of walking through some of the NABC numbers, the, the, uh, the North American kind of collaborative bird initiative. Um, and they put out their state of the birds report. And, and the two numbers that just jump off the page when you read that 2019 report um, was that waterfowl populations had increased by 56% um, since 1970, but grassland bird populations had gone down by 53% over the same time period. And you start thinking about why is that? And for me, there's there's two major tools in the wetland toolbox that we don't have here. The first is a duck stamp, and the second is the second is NACA. Mm -hmm. And and that dedicated investment. I mean, we have our good friends at the National Wild Turkey Federation all the time say, so save the habitat, save the hunt. Like like we've had incredibly focused effort on wetlands for a half century, and the results are spectacular. Outside of the farm bill, um, we haven't had that same level of effort in our grasslands um, at the federal level. There's been some state level efforts, but for the most part. And I think we were also in kind of a scarcity mentality for a long time as we're seeing the farm bill get cut back and we're kind of on our, 
you know, in some ways on our, on our back legs, just trying to defend what we had. So it was hard to even propose something new without being, uh, being fearful of having something that we already care about being cannibalized to create it. And, mm -hmm. and at the, uh, the 2019, uh, grasslands conference that we host with, with these guys and with others, uh, in, in Bismarck, North, North Dakota, um, I, we kind of laid out a challenge saying, you know, like we've, we've talked about this for a long time, let, let's do it. And, and a couple months later, um, uh, at the, uh, the hole in the wood, the hole in the, hole in the wood, uh, uh, in Akron, in Akron, Iowa, Dave and Howard invited me to, yeah. to show off my, my lack of hunting skills in front of a, a lot of people who are pros. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and we, we got into a serious conversation about this and climate and other things, um, about making it real. And I think, you know, to Howard's great, uh, leadership. I think the way he's been able to mobilize uh, pheasants forever and quail forever around this effort has been transformative, given they are the best on the ground. I mean, Lan is one of the best advocates in terms of mobilizing young folks and just really getting folks ju juiced up. And then also having, you know, the Congressional Fortune Foundation and, and, and TRCP and, and World Wildlife Fund and TNC, I mean, all the other big folks fall in. It showed there's a need. And I think we and I think my goal in this was just to kind of call the question um, and just say, like, we have to get going. And, you know, we can't always operate from a position of, um, of, of scarcity. And now obviously you got a different political alignment right now. Things are a little bit easier to talk about money. But I mean, we're talking about, you know, billions of dollars potentially of investment in our grasslands through this reconciliation package, as they're calling it, um, in addition to, you know, this and, and as, a, as a way to have a huge down payment on this act. But that's kind of the, the origin. I mean, it's just it's, it, I don't know how you get more staggering than if something going up 50 percent, something going down by 50 percent and there being policy drivers for it. So that's how that's how we got into it. And Howard, when folks hear this, the another thing that I think they automatically think is, well, you know, what about the farm bill? What about CRP? Doesn't this doesn't doesn't a tool already exist for this? Yeah, I think there's I think that's the natural thought that this is being taken care of in that. And, and that's not the case at all. Uh, the conservation reserve program, you know, we're taking out marginal. Uh, cropland that never sh probably should have been farmed to begin with, uh, but that's a pendulum that swings. And at one point we were at, you know, 39.6 million acres, and now we're uh, we're at 24 million at the moment. But we're going to see three million acres expire at the end of September here. So I, I agree uh, with Colin. I think we're sometimes uh, put in a defensive position. This Grasslands Act puts us on the offensive to really do more. And, and, and again, I'm, I'm asking people to have a continental view of this. This isn't just farmland. This isn't just Midwest. This isn't, this is an entire landscape. And think about the impact, the sage grouse step itself. And, you know, sure you can hold up that iconic bird of a sage grouse, but in reality, there's 350 species that live in that space that mm. are at risk. The cost of this, country to under endangered species to, the, to defend 350 of these unique species is unfathomable. We, we, there's no way we can do it. We need to be get out in front of this. We need to protect this. And this is cost savings beyond uh, imagination here. Um, you know, we're looking for $350 million annually. Um, that's a drop in the bucket of what the impact if we don't do this. And if you think about, again, stacking all these benefits of water, soil, uh, pollinators, monarchs, and then now let's add uh, carbon sequestration to this, right? The climate resiliency in this space uh, should be some of those magic words uh, that we should be thinking about here. So uh, this is wholly different. This is additive times 10. Um, and I think we all need to get our head around that. So... Colin, one of the key components is for this to live, this Grasslands Act to live as part of the Department of Interior as opposed to the Department of Agriculture. Uh, talk about why that is a critical component for the success of the, the this this concept. Yeah, and, and it's and obviously we, we have great respect for our friends at USDA and NRCS. Um, and, and obviously they, you know, are, are doing a better job, I guess, every day on the administration of CRP. Is that a fair way to say that, Howard? Uh, <laughs> it's getting better. Yes. But I, I think, I think this is, it's important to get the ecological piece right. And, and I think that, you know, for us, um, they have a proven success model with the, with the NACA program. I mean, it's just, it's at this point, I mean, replicating that model of, you know, collaborative, high leverage. You know, kind of ecologically sound, kind of good economic return on investment um, decision making 
is is really just has become the model. And you look at the the Wetlands Council and and the Waterfall Council, and you look at you know kind of that those systems. Um, they're really in the in the interior. They're really in the, the Fish and Wildlife Service. But of course, it's going to have to be done in close collaboration and in partnership with USDA and all the on the ground partners. But we're hopeful that um, it's also a way to have it not compete with the farm bill. Um, we really want to make sure we're not. So there's a, there's kind of a there's a philosophical reason and kind of an implementation reason. It's also kind of a brass knuckle politics piece to this. And like, look, we're, I think we're all pretty excited about Chairwoman Stabenow talking about trying to double the farm bill in the next the conservation title on the farm bill next next round and, and things like that. But um, we want to make sure that we're able to fund those innovative partner driven projects that wouldn't necessarily be funded through the farm bill. And to, to Howard's point, it's not just private lands, right? We're talking public lands, we're talking you know, multi potentially into Canada and Mexico. And mm-hmm. so it's just a little different scope than the traditional farm bill program and therefore it probably belongs to live somewhere else. Uh, land backcountry hunters and anglers has has really elevated the entire hunting and fishing communities value for our public lands and defense of those public lands. Um, you know, I, I think we all intuitively um, cared and valued them, but we maybe took it for granted until BHA um, elevated the danger of, of uh, or the threat of some of those public lands um, being taken out of the public's hands. Um, when you think about the North American Grasslands Conservation Act, um, what's what's that public component from your perspective? Why why is it a why is this act a critical um, critical piece of legislation for BHA? Well, that's great. Um, and by the way, I think there's uh, many other folks on this phone as well that uh, have done a great job uh, elevating public lands as, as, as something that happened in this country, not by accident. Right. Like I think. And that's and that's really what we're talking about today is that we are we see this train coming down the tracks. It's going to run us over. And that train is, is really the development of grasslands. That train is climate change. It's already been talked about. What can we do to create a different path for that train? And so maybe we can even get on that train and take a ride and at some point, you know, go chase around uh, sharp tails or sage grouse or elk and deer on these grasslands. But I think, you know, it really goes back to, you know, the interface between public lands and private lands and, and how integral that is to our wildlife populations in this country and how when we think more globally, I think it's been talked about today, you know, and, and, and really like resource and ecosystem wide that combining kind of the public land opportunities um, and the resource resources that we have on public lands with our private lands is the way that we give not only the best shot for these species, but ultimately, I think the best shot for us as hunters um, and the best shot for these, these local communities, you know, these local communities that, that vitally depend on them. And back, back to Howard's piece, I mean, CRP is, you know, Conservation Reserve Program is absolutely amazing. But the ebbs and flows of that has direct impacts on not only the bird populations, but on, on local communities as well. Mm-hmm. And, and so how do we become more resilient in that? Well, we create more opportunities um, to think more globally and to think more long term than maybe some of these just each farm bill where we have this influx of increase or decrease in CRP. Um, this to me um, is, is, is like is like Howard said, it's very additive, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and when we have that additive piece. Um, man, can we, can we, you know, when you start stacking things on top of each other, that's where you accomplish things. I mean, Colin talked about our waterfowl populations in this country. Like, where would we be without the duck stamp, right? Where would we be without NACA? Like, this idea is like combining like things like CRP along with uh, this Grassland Act to, to really elevate um, this ecosystem and these species. And again, I think that you know, Howard's doing a good job about bringing this back to this isn't just about Iowa or grasslands in the central part of the country. This is everywhere. Mm-hmm. And when I think about the sage step in particular that Howard talked about earlier, very endangered as well, like endangered probably for different reasons. But when you think about um, not only this, you know, the 350 th- species that depend on sage step, but the ones that I love chasing around, you know, the mule deer and the elk and the pronghorn those species depend on that landscape and who are we to uh, really ignore the signs and the pressures that are being put on these places. And, you know, let's look at history and, and be reminded that we can do something as long as we do that collectively and we think big. And I think that's exactly what's happening today. A key word that, you know, I have written at the top of my outline for this and we haven't talked a lot about it yet is voluntary. And, you know, you think about NACA, 
NACA is built on voluntary, and that's true of this particular concept as well. Howard, uh, talk about <laughs> what the voluntary component of this Grasslands Act concept, um, how, how does that connect with landowners? Well, I mean, it has to be voluntary. This isn't a federal land grab. We're not taking uh, something and putting it away. We're, we're, this is a habitat initiative at the end of the day. How do we, how do we improve habitats? How do we look at uh, wildfire management? How do we look at invasive species management and really improve what we have? So this, this Grasslands Act is to take what we currently have. How do we make it better? How do we carry it into the future? Um, you know, a great tool would be conservation easements, but that's just, you know, one, one tool in that toolbox. And um, all of these practices are voluntary. Um, the conservation reserve program, you know, part of that farm bill, mm -hmm. 100% of that is voluntary. Uh, we can act, add voluntary access to those acres. So those private landowners can make that decision. We can give them an economic driver uh, to allow the broad public uh, greater access to this to this landscape should they choose. Um, but, you know, this is uh, far reaching. Uh, we're in this world of, you know, where we're, you know, kind of aging out here, the, the classic 60 year old, you know, male hunters, and we need to backfill that and create opportunities for others to participate uh, across our public lands. And, and I guess I would look at, you know, those public lands are our hubs. Now, how do we add those spokes? in those private lands extensions, hmm. uh, continue uh, wildlife corridors, uh, connectivity. Um, so there's so, you know, again, the stars are lining up. We're so excited about this. Uh, and this has legs. Hmm. I believe we can drive this. Uh, the teams that stepped up, uh, the punch that National Wildlife Federation brings, the voices that backcountry, you know, in their space, uh, is, is just magic here. And I know we can deliver this. Uh, we're incredibly excited. Um, so let's get out and get it done here. So this, you said this has legs and that's where I want to go next. I want to turn it to Colin first and sort of handicap the race for us here, you know, in, in, uh, in, in horse racing terms, if you will. Um, you know, we, that op-ed appeared December, 2020 and, in my view, there's been an awful lot of momentum in a short period of time. Um, where are we today? How close are we to like getting this legitimately moving through the halls of Congress? Yeah, Tell so us where I, we're I at, appreciate Colin. that, and and I do think it's moving moving quickly in a in a in a good way. Um, I mean, like there's been a ton of conversations over the past year with partner groups. That coalition keeps getting bigger and bigger. Huge support among the Biden administration, which is great. Um, there's a lot of a lot of support on the Hill. Um, as well from both Republicans and Democrats, especially the key ones on the key committees. And so the the, the concepts got a lot of buy-in. I mean, I think there's some technical issues we're still working through the level of funding. And you now I, mean, I want to see in that three to four, three to five hundred, sorry, 300 to 350 range, as, as Howard mentioned. Um, then the reason that number makes sense just for your listeners is that's roughly the same kind of per acre as we have for wetlands right now, um, given, the, given the expanse of, of of grasslands and, and sagebrush stuff that we have in this country. So there's a, there's a rationality behind that number. It wasn't kind of picked out of a hat. Um, but I'm excited. I mean, we got, you know, great coordination with tribes, um, great coordination with a lot of the farming and ranching groups already, a lot of support. I mean, and it gets back to Howard's last answer, right? I mean, this isn't scary to folks because it's voluntary. It's proactive. It's, you know, there's benefits for a lot of folks and whether that's wildlife benefits or there's benefits around resilience, whether that's from fire or from floods or you know, just to sequester carbon. So there's a huge, it kind of meets the moment in a, a significant way. So, I mean, I'm really optimistic. We have a, a formal, a formal bill introduced, you know, in the next couple of weeks or a couple of months. Um, you know, the next month's going to be a little complicated as they're going through infrastructure and there's some other things on the plate right now. But, you know, if the last Congress taught us anything where we saw the huge public lands package pass and the, and the, the huge sportsman package pass, the ASAC, the American Conservation Enhancement Act, the, and then the, the kind of the, the grand dame of the, of the, of the session being the, being the Great American Outdoors Act, um, all of which were completely bipartisan, some of which were unanimous almost, I mean, 90, 90 plus votes in the case of the, uh, of the public lands package and the, uh, and the ASAC. And so, um, this is in that package, right? They're covering America's wildlife Act. this, you know, there's some coastal resilience stuff too, that's kind of in play. Um, but you know, it's, it's got like, there's not gonna be a lot of bipartisan legislating going on after the reconciliation package, given some other things that are going on, 
unless it's in everybody's interest. This is one of those areas where, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's attractive to everybody. It's going to support parts of the country that are struggling right now as we're trying to get back on our feet after the pandemic. Um, and so, you know, I'm incredibly optimistic, you know, I'm hoping that this gets done this Congress. Um, again, it's an authorization. So there's a separate kind of conversation later about getting the money appropriated. But, you know, I put our odds, you know, look, anything you can get more than 50, 50 in the U S Congress is, is kind of a remarkable thing. And I'll put this well above, above 50, 50, because you got a coalition that, you know, spans the spectrum, spans the region, spans all kinds of interests. And you have that when you have those, mm -hmm. that kind of robustness, like we saw last Congress, um, that's when magic can still happen in a, a fairly dysfunctional environment they're all living in right now. Yeah, you mentioned early on in your comments, uh, America's grasslands, and I say that broadly, and I'll come back to that, are disappearing faster than the rainforest. And I've, I've said on this podcast a number of times, when I was a kid growing up in the 80s, I can remember Saturday morning cartoons talking about the rainforests are disappearing, right? And that it's, they're going to be gone. And we're going to, with that, we're going to lose all these species and, you know, cures for all sorts of diseases that we just have no idea because plants and animals are disappearing. And right now, grasslands, America's grasslands, sage, savannas, glades, barrens are disappearing faster than virtually any other ecosystem on the planet. And I say all those, you know, savannas, grasslands, prairies, sage, because they're the backyards of every place in America. You live in Florida, you live in Montana, you live in California, you live in Vermont. Your grasslands are the fastest disappearing ecosystem. It's, it, it, and that's, to me, one of the things that's incredibly powerful, and you touched on this, Colin, incredibly powerful about this concept is while we use the generic term grasslands in, you know, land are, you know, eloquently talked about the backcountry of grasslands too, but it's also our backyards and they're going away on our watch right now. But yet we have this window of opportunity to do something about it. That's what, that to me is what resonates. It doesn't matter if you, you know, you maybe think about you live in Wyoming and you have sage. And it's going to be relevant. But if you live in North Carolina and you care about Bob White quail, this is relevant to you. It does span coast to coast, east to west, north to south. Um, Land, when you think about that, you know, what what do you want people to take as the next step? How do we how do we motivate them to take action? Great question. Um, so sometimes when the weight of the world is on your shoulders, you kind of are paralyzed by inaction, right? Like, like what can I do? And thank goodness that there was many leaders that became before us that in the face of, you know, adversity, they stepped up, you know, like, again, like how awesome is the duck stamp? You know, mm -hmm. how awesome is it that we pay excise taxes on guns and ammunition? That all came out of some pretty bad and troubling times. And so while your description, you know, of your backyard is going away or it's the most endangered landscapes in the world, we should all know that, but we should not be paralyzed. And so to me, you know, this country is, is, is really run by doers. That's what democracy is. And so I think the first thing we, we can do is we can educate ourselves. And so, you know, you have three organizations um, that are here right now. I think the National Wildlife Federation and Pheasants Forever are light years ahead of us as far as like education and, and really learning about, um, you know, what the perils are uh, for these grasslands and the species, you know, and the sage step and the savannas that are at risk. Um, but it's, it's really finding out more about this. And so I think, you know, we don't do this very often as organizations, but we have come together and decided to kind of pool our resources uh, and, and really form a website called actforgrasslands.org. And then with that actforgrasslands.org, that's where all this information is going to come together in one place. And so you can really figure out, um, kind of get yourself educated. Then the second piece of that, if we were just educated and we weren't taking action, then nothing is really going to change. And so this will also create opportunities for action. And so whether you belong to Pheasants Forever, National Wildlife Federation, or BHA, some of the other organizations, our action alerts will be housed on this website. And so at that point, you can take actions throughout this process. Now, sending emails is just one of the ways to do that. You know, I think as we get engaged, um, we have a bunch of folks, um, you know, that 
that uh, either have staff back home or they like to visit back home. These are our elected officials and seeing them back home and talking to them about what's in their back backyards, I think is vitally important. So um, a lot of these politicians maybe sometimes feel like they're on a pedestal and they don't want to be talked to. They absolutely want to be talked to. In fact, they enjoy it. It's probably the best part of their job is talking to constituents. And so don't be afraid of talking to them. Um, the last piece I guess I would say is, is as you get yourself educated, Pick up the phone and call out to your congressional members out in D.C. and talk to them how much of a priority this is for you and, and why, you know, I think make that all relevant. You know, I think, again, my trip, you know, through North Dakota, like I saw the grasslands there with my own eyes. And I don't want, you know, like like someday to tell my kids that, yeah, that national grasslands is the only kind of grasslands that we have left because we didn't act, like we did mm. not take action. And so I think making that as uh, personal as possible when you're talking to these elected officials, I think is important. But I'll, I'll kind of end where I started is again, this country is, 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 is run by those that are doers and step up and do something. Um, you know, another way to say it is, is that you're either at the table or you're on the menu. And right now we're on the menu, man. They're eating us up. They're taking acres, acres and acres are being converted that we will never, ever get back. How do we kind of turn that tide is that we step up um, and that we're at the table. And I think that's what, you know, we're starting today um, that I look forward to, you know, talking to my kids on the porch instead of, oh, man, I wish we would have seen that coming and done something about it. That holy cow, look what we did. And now we're gifting this to you to go do what you need to do to make sure you protect this legacy. So uh, I would say, again, like go to actforgrasslands.org. It's going to be the hub of this campaign. And we don't do this very often. You know, I think teaming with wildlife is one that, you know, that we've talked about the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. But teaming for wildlife has been around, you know, for a long time. And we don't do this very often, but this one is so important that we're coming together on this piece. So uh, actforgrasslands.org, show up early, learn, and then take action. Colin, so this is the first time Colin and I have ever met. And Colin, you were described as a politi savvy political operative, you know, kind of the, the, the political wonk of the, of the group. How much, how much can we turn politicians' heads by focusing all of our groups on sending in letters, emails um, for around this Act for Grasslands concept? Is, is yeah, I mean, I, I think Land laid it out perfectly. I mean, I think um, this is attractive to folks because there's really no one that opposes it. I mean, that's the amazing thing, right? I mean, if we do our work right and we work with, you know, folks in Farm Bureau and folks in Cattlemen and, and, and folks in different different um, users because I think I think for all of us we want healthy grasslands because healthy grasslands also support working land working landscapes and so when those economic and ecological interests mm -hmm. align um, you have something that's interesting to members I think you also have something when it when it truly is bipartisan or even nonpartisan in this case um, and I, like I think folks are gonna want some examples back home um, to, to show how, how things can still work I mean things are, are pretty dysfunctional right now and um, you know I mean like if you told me you know, three years ago when, you know, Land and I were spending a lot of time strategizing on how to get the Land and Water Conservation Fund fully, not just fully reauthorized, but actually dedicated, permanent funded. Um, you know, I mean, he and I were probably two of the more optimistic folks in kind of the advocacy wing of the, of the community. Um, but I mean, that would have been seen as an uphill, uphill climb, right? And, and look, anytime when politics matches a moment, right? Like that's when like magic can happen. And I think in that case, you had some folks that wanted it for re-election for very specific reasons. You have other folks that are true believers. You had folks on both sides who are working hard, working together. And no one um, decided to kind of put politics over making progress in that moment by saying, you know, we don't want this on because it could help somebody in a re-election race. This is less, this is less charged than that issue. I mean, that was about acquisition. I mean, there's other, you know, complexities with that. I mean, this is as mom and apple pie as it gets. And so, but we got to do the work. And this is where I think, you know, it's, it's great to um, you know, send the emails and send tweets and, and things like that. There's nothing better than the, the member to member level contact, right? When you talk to a person, you're saying, hey, remember this thing in our backyard to use your, your words, right? And all of a sudden, you know, get them to see some things that are that we're losing and hear from folks in their district. Um, that's still the most, you know, we, we can have platforms, you know, social media platforms who are blue in the face, but nothing, nothing matches human interaction. So, um, I would encourage folks to go all in. I mean, and I'd and like, and just in terms of like the political machinations of all this, I really want this done this Congress before we start setting up the next farm bill. Uh, I just think there's a lot of additional things we're going to want to do in the next farm bill. Um, and obviously that's a slow ramp that, you know, takes time and all of our, all of our works get together on that. 
But, um, you know, we got to get through the Environment and Public Works Committee, where she's going to have jurisdiction over over this in the Senate, the House Natural Resources Committee. We got folks like, you know, the thing I get excited about, you got, you know, leading members in the House, for example, you know, the, the chairman, who's a fairly progressive member from New Mexico, Raul who's also has, you know, interest in this uh, in, a, in a huge way, who also has, you know, in, there's also interest from Bruce Westerman, a very conservative, but great kind of um, natural resource leader from Arkansas who's the ranking member. I mean, like this has the ability to span some groups. Um, and that's when people's head turn and that's looking, that's when you get leadership's attention. When you say like, hey, I need floor time for this thing because it's gonna move quickly on the floor. It's not gonna be a big knocked out, drag out fight. And like, unfortunately for a lot of our, a lot of your listeners, um, it probably won't be on the front page of the paper. I mean, because it's, it's not gonna be bloody. It's gonna be one of these things that um, it's, gonna, it's gonna bring people together and get done. Um, but you know, it will be as transformative of all the huge things. I mean, this is, this is as big as, you know, some of the excise taxes as the duck stamp 30 years ago, as the, the, the duck stamp 80 years ago, the, the, uh, the NACA 30 years ago, um, this is that transformative. And we'll be able to look back and say like, you know, we stepped up at a moment of crisis and turned that crisis, I mean, as Lance said, into an opportunity. That's really well said. Um, but I don't want it to be, I don't want it to come off as, you know, that there's no adversaries. So it's a four. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 yeah, and I didn't mean to give that impression, but I think like if, we, if we do the, if we do the work, no, no, this will get done. It, so that's my, that's my pledge to all your listeners. Like if we do the work, yeah. right. If everybody listened to this and everybody from our organizations and we all kind of, you know, when, when like when our, te- our teams are, are good individually, I, I feel like we're like NATO when like we had, I don't, we, but we have a good friend of ours named Adam Colton who just passed away. He used to talk about the need for the community to be like NATO, right? And come together kind of around big opportunities, big threats, um, and really kind of punch way above our class or way, way above our class. And uh, this is one of those moments. And I just think, you know, if everyone does their part, we'll be looking, we'll be looking pretty in a year and a half. And, and that's, that's right on. And the opportunity is right now. I mean, we're this collaborative, these 10 groups, we're asking all our members, all our sh- social media followers, and we're talking in the, the millions of people to take action on Thursday, September 9th. You know, do not delay. Jump on your email, pick up your phone. We want Grasslands to be trending on Twitter on September 9th. Grasslands has to own the day on September 9th. It's got to be the first word in every senator's off every senator's lips, in every congressional's head. Grasslands has to own the day on September 9th, and we need every hunter, every angler, every conservationist to pick up their phone, their social media tool, and use that hashtag Act for Grasslands. Go to the website Act for Grasslands. Pick up your phone Act for Grasslands September. Ninth. Bob, I'm going to add this to this. Make it personal. When you're talking to your legislators, this needs to be personal. Um, You know, I've been in those DC offices and I walk in, I get to walk in as the president and CEO and I'm representing, you know, our 140,000 members. But I'm telling you, nothing carries the weight. And I've been in that office with a, a family from, let's, let's say Iowa County and they're talking to their congressional, I might as well not be in the room because I'm not voting for that individual. This couple sitting in front of them whose family is growing up in that rural Iowa landscape and is making a case for conservation, for water, for the health of their family to be able to stay maybe on that farm. Um, They own that legislator. They're engaged, Um, it's meaningful. So when you have the opportunity to go face to face or uh, send that email or that letter, make it personal. This is this is your backyard, right? We have a global view, absolutely, and we and that's the impact that we want to have. But all habitats local. Tell your story. Um, you can move this Congress, and I'm telling you, it won't be easy. Um, Colin laid it out. Land laid it out. Uh, but th- believe me, this is going to be a fight. And we're going to fight for dollars probably at the end of the day, right? Every There's a finite amount of dollars in that federal pool. We can show that there's going to be a return on that federal investment because we're going to match dollars. It's very similar to the NACA program. Um, so we can win this, but it's going to uh, uh, require everyone to step up and tell their story. Yeah, and Howard, I think that 
know, making everything local is like absolutely important. I think this uh, September 9th date that Bob is talking about, I see that as like the, the gigantic kickoff. I would say you got to be persistent too, you know? Yeah. And I think throughout this fall, as, as you're out there hunting and, you know, we're having all these great opportunities on the landscapes that we've been talking about today, when you post those pictures on social media, because you know you're going to do it, that hashtag uh, act for grasslands, just include that mm-hmm. and then tag your senator or your representative yep. in that. As like lame as that sounds, that makes this persistent. And so throughout this process that, you know, by the time, you know, I think that, you know, if we're going to get this done, it isn't this Congress. And I think that Colin is, is right. But that action on September 9th is the kickoff of this, but then it's going to take persistence throughout this. Last thing I would say and kind of that that piece is also be polite, right? So be persistent and be polite. I think, yeah. you know, this this world we're living in right now um, has its politeness has kind of gone out the door. And I think that when you're being when you're when you're talking with your elected officials in particular, uh, be polite with them, but be persistent. They will get that um, because they get yelled at all the time yeah. and, and they understand that everybody's got different things that they are, you know, that is important to them. This is important to us. So let's be persistent and then let's be polite. Yeah, really, really well said. Uh, September 9th is only the beginning uh, because this could take a few months. Hopefully it doesn't. <laughs> hopefully it doesn't take a few years, right? Because we need it. We need this tool on the landscape sooner rather than later. Um, I, I'll go around for closing thoughts. Um, maybe you can each pull out your crystal ball a little bit and paint a picture for what you think th- this tool would look like on the landscape for the future, but put a bow on this um, episode for me. Your, your closing thoughts on, on the North American Grasslands Conservation Act. Where do we go from here? We'll start with Colin. What's your closing hey, look, thoughts I mean, you want to leave? Each of you that are with? listening, um, obviously deeply care about the resource um, and deeply care about, you know, the opportunities and access and, you know, the ability to have, you know, great hunts and great family experiences. Um, that all depends on healthy habitat. And at the end of the day, like this, this is as transformative like we all we all revere, you know, the stories about, you know, Roosevelt, you know, the stories about Leopold or Pinchot or, you know, these kind of giants in the past. Um, each of them made a contribution of some type of some type of conservation advancement, right? The refuge system or national forests or, you know, professional wildlife management or dedicated funding. I mean, everyone, you know, Darling, I put Ding Darling in that category. Um, these are our generation's chance, right? We got we got to work for the full diversity of wildlife. We have to do some work mm-hmm. for some ecosystems that have. Um, just been neglected for a long time. And and it's time well spent. You know, this is stuff that, you know, we're going to be telling our grandkids and great grandkids about um, because a, a system that could have collapsed was preserved because of actions that, that we all individually and collectively took. And I just think in that context, right, I mean, every generation has a responsibility to build on the shoulders of what came before, but also create those opportunities for the next. Um, this is the next big chapter. And I just encourage all of your listeners. As a matter of fact, they got kids going back to school. They got you know plans for fall and you know winter hunts and stuff. Make the time for this. Um, it'll, it'll be one of the most rewarding things, one of the most rewarding campaigns you'll ever work on. Um, because I think if we all do our part, the uh, the the benefits when we look back, you know, 50 years from now, um, you know, we won't see a 53% decline in grassland birds. We're going to see that 50 to 100% increase in grassland birds. And if we do that, then we can truly tr- really say we fulfilled our our purpose as leaving uh, nature just a, a little little healthier and, and having that full diversity of wildlife available for future generations. Um, that's a pretty good legacy. And I don't know, I, I guess I'll end with Dr. Seuss. Um, you know, if, <laughs> unless someone like us cares a whole awful lot, you know, nothing's <laughs> going to get better. It's not. And uh, it's not us. It's not us. It's who and not now when, right? And this is, this, is our, this is our time. So please, please, please take the time and join this campaign and go to the, uh, the website, that, go to the actforgrasslands.org website and get involved. I wasn't expecting the Dr. Seuss, but I do love it. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and I wholeheartedly agree with you that the moment in time is right now. And it's whether you, you're a member of an organization or, or you work for an organization, I've never seen an opportunity like this in 18 years that I've been working in conservation. This is the moment is right now. So hopefully... You know, this isn't coming up as a telethon too much, and we're uh, we're we're getting people energized to to take action. Um, Land, your closing thought, because Howard's my boss, and he gets the final word. 
Oh, I figured, I figured, and he should have the final word too. Um, so I think that, you know, we've had baseball references, we've had racetrack references, now we have Dr. Seuss coming up. I've loved this podcast um, as much as you thought. Maybe it's like a telethon or something. It's been fun as well. Um, you know, my my closing thoughts really are, are that, you know, Colin talked about these icons, about, you know, the Roosevelt's, the Pinchot's, the Aldo Leopold's, like amazing folks, you know, that have gifted us you know, really this legacy that we're talking about today and that we're trying to, you know, pass on to the next generation. There was thousands of other people that took action right alongside with them that we don't necessarily know the names of because they weren't like these iconic, you know, leaders that all three of those that I just talked about and many others, but they took action. And so no matter what role that is, you know, we're all three CEOs today talking about this. We all have staff that's going to be working really hard on this. But there is no way that this gets done without the grassroots engagement. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as the opportunity that I think, you know, Colin is talking about, and it's kind of once in a lifetime opportunity, think about the Great American Outdoors Act and how how hard that was to move over. It was such a no brainer. And at the end of the day, like ultimately passed, you know, with veto proof majorities, the president signed it into law. That did not happen in a vacuum. That happened because people stepped up and they demanded politely but they demanded that this get done. And so to me, as we sit at, on this once in a lifetime kind of opportunity and kind of is our duck stamp, is our, you know, uh, Pittman-Robertson Act, like this is our opportunity. And, and so it's not going to happen unless we get involved. And so I know for one that I will be involved. Uh, I know for one that I'm going to make my kids involved in this and uh, the rest of our staff. But it's going to take individual effort and, you know, on top of that. And, you know, how lucky are we that we have an opportunity to even be talking about this? You know, we live in a country that is the envy of the entire world because we care about conservation, not only to uh, protect the species and clean air and clean water, but also for us as participants in that, um, that it doesn't matter who you are to participate, you know, in these activities. So let's take action today um, and then be persistent and polite throughout this whole process. And then we'll be sitting there and then we'll be smiling, smiling in a year and a half. I'm going to hold uh, Colin to that. And then in 20 years, 100% increase in bird numbers. I'm down with that. I'm down with that. <laughs> the good old days on the horizon if we get Absolutely. the North American Grasslands Act passed. Howard, your closing thoughts? Well, I don't know if I can say it any better than uh, Lan and Colin, uh, but uh, this will be a touch point in this country's conservation history. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, this isn't three organizations that believe in this. Uh, there, there will be hundreds of organizations and agencies that come out. It'll be our tribal partners uh, will reach out. And again, this isn't putting land away this is creating voluntary access and improving that landscape through habitat improvements. Uh, if you just think about where we are at this very moment with the drought, you know, and to say that out West is even incorrect. I mean, this is two thirds of the United States. These grasslands can hold water. It should be a sponge, right? We shouldn't be accelerating water. We should be holding water. And these, these landscapes will do that. Mm -hmm. And the ripple effect, you know, to stay with the water analogy, the ripple effect is uh, just life-changing on that landscape uh, for soil health, for wildlife, uh, for carbon sequestration, for resiliency on those landscapes. Um, there's so many things that we've learned uh, over our life here. Now let's deploy them. Let's do the single right thing. Uh, inaction would be the crime mm -hmm. that this did go out in, in, in our lifetime. Um, we can have an impact. Uh, this is a civics lesson. This is how laws get deployed. This is how our vision of that landscape should look. Let's go get that done. Boy, it's a tremendous closing thoughts from all three of you. I just, I'll just add, let's boil this down to what we all learned as third graders, the web of life. You know, grasslands are the foundation of healthy soils, clean water, the insects that, uh, you know, birds eat and, and, and the mammals that we love to chase and that we eat. 
everything is interconnected to everything we learned as grade schoolers. We just have to take care of it. And that's what the North American Grasslands Conservation Act intends to do. And we hope you, uh, you're convinced to take action September 9th and beyond. Take that photo of the short hair, the Labrador, the Weimariner, the Spinoni Italiano, the wire-haired pointing griffon, or... How about a lab? How about a lab? Can we just say Labrador? Uh, did I not say lab? I thought you I said lab. Maybe you did <laughs> Or any other pup out there that you're out chasing or chasing, you know, bird hunting, pronghorn hunting, or just out chasing a sunset with a camera. Hashtag act for grasslands and tag your elected official. Let them know that... Uh, Grasslands are part of your backyard and, and important enough for you to raise your voice to protect. Thank you to Colin, Land, and Howard, National Wildlife Federation, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and of course, our organization, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Um, start by taking action on September 9th and then beyond. I'm Bob St. Pierre reminding you to always follow the dog through those grasslands because something good will rise. Thanks for listening, folks.